16. Starting in verse 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves uh, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's holy, uh, inspired, and errant word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish by the, sea, by the side of the Sea of Galilee uh, is the only miracle that he does in his earthly ministry that is mentioned in all four Gospels. This is the only miracle that he does in his ministry, his public ministry. Of course, I'm not counting the, uh, the resurrection, you know, the, not because it's not his public ministry, uh, but what we normally think of as his public ministry. This is the only miracle out of all of them that he does that is recorded in all four Gospels. This means that there is no other miracle that is more popular than this one is in his earthly ministry, and no other miracle then that is more endemic to the purpose of his coming than this very one that we just read a moment ago. Uh, it's for this reason that I'll say whenever I'm teaching uh, this, either to the youth group or high school or anything like, uh, like that, that our knowledge of Jesus' miracles at all really hinges upon our knowledge of this particular miracle. In other words, you don't know about the miracles of Jesus unless you know about this particular miracle. This is an incredibly important uh, miracle, to say it this way, and there's good reasons why this miracle is as important as it is, not the least of which because it tells us something very clearly about Jesus and his ministry. It tells us that he provides that's the basic uh, summation of uh, not only the entire sermon, but every time that you read it in in all four Gospels, if you get nothing else from this miracle, you are to know that Jesus stands as your provider. That's what you are to walk away from as you read this uh, this passage and get up and, and move from it. He provides for us, he does this, and no one else. That's how it's synced up in all four Gospels. He stands as your sole uh, provider. As a matter of fact, not only does he provide, but this miracle demonstrates that his provision for his people uh, superabounds uh, not only to just satisfying them, 
He provides well beyond what is just merely needed. He provides so much for us that we who are in Christ are virtually unable to receive all of it. That's how much he provides for us. And what do we need most? Uh, What do we need most? A new car, perhaps? Uh, Do we need more money? Uh, Do we need a politician to get into office or something like uh, like that? No, no. Uh, We don't need, our, our, our most basic and fundamental need is not even the air that is in our lungs. Uh, Our most basic and fundamental need is to be in communion with God. That's our most basic and fundamental uh, need, to be in fellowship with God. We need an assurance that God looks upon us uh, with love and compassion. That's what we need the absolute most. That we need to know that when we pray to heaven, that when when we conduct ourselves doing anything that uh, that it is that we do, that heaven looks down and smiles upon us. We need that assurance that God loves us and has compassion for us. And when God provides Christ for us, uh, what is provided for us? God himself. God himself is provided for us. Ephesians 3 verse 20 refers to God as him who is able to do, listen to this, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And just let that marinate in your minds just for a second. Uh, That is to say, if we can ask or think of the abundance of the riches of God's provisions for us, if we can ask for it, or if we can think of it, we're not quite exactly there. We're getting there, I suppose, but he provides for us, he's able to, to provide far more abundantly than all that we even ask or think. Titus 3 verse 6 says that the Spirit of God is poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ. That word richly, I love that, uh, that, that passage, uh, almost specifically because of that, uh, that word richly. That is, it's not just you know, a little sprinkling here and there, and this is again why when I, whenever I baptize babies, I kind of like drench them, right? Uh, because the Spirit is poured upon us richly in Christ. It's not just a little bit here and a little bit there, and we'll give you a little bit more if, if, if you're a good boy, a good, good girl, something like, uh, like that. It's a rich provision of Christ for us. And this miracle here stands as the pinnacle, the, 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 the physical and tangible expression of the abundance of the provision of God for his people in Christ. That the provision that we have in Christ exceeds well beyond even our desires, all of them put together, well beyond anyone or anything uh, that this earth or anyone in it could ever offer. The provision of Jesus superabounds beyond that which we can even take in. And this being the fourth sign in the Gospel of John, we're again reminded of Jesus' uh, divine prerogatives as he's going about doing these, uh, these signs, that he, uh, being the word of God, uh, John 1 verse 1, truly God who was with God and was God within and was in, in the beginning with God, Jesus has divine prerogatives to not only perform these signs, uh, but also to tell, them, to tell us what they mean. Uh, he not only has divine prerogative to well, do, if, if you want to call it, another act of creation and even uh, performing this and, and distributing all of these, uh, uh, this food to all these people, but also he has the authority to tell us what it means as well. Remember that these signs parallel the things that were done in the Exodus at some level, as we've seen on the first sermon um, uh, on the signs of Jesus, John chapter 2, the turning of water into wine. 
And the Gospel of John has a particular angle to this sign, distinct from the other three Gospels uh, that we'll be covering uh, this morning. And even though this or any single sermon on this, uh, this passage what can only be really a highlight of the events that go on here, we'll be looking at this with this as our theme, that when Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, he demonstrates the full scope of his earthly and heavenly ministry. Uh, it's found in your bulletin. When Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, he demonstrates the full scope of his earthly and heavenly ministry. This is how important of a miracle that this is. And as I typically do, uh, particularly with my uh, sermons on the signs of Jesus, we'll be uh, hammering this out with these three uh, points. We'll be going through the setting of the sign, the performing of the sign, and the meaning of the sign. Now, first point, we come to verse 1. Uh, we come to verse 1 on the setting of the sign. Uh, it says... After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus has been mainly in Jerusalem at this, uh, up until this, this point. And the Sea of Galilee is as far north as he'll ever be in this book. In the other Gospels, uh, this is known as a desolate place. A desolate place. You can see this in, in, in the other Gospels. And Jesus travels here after hearing about the death of, of the beloved John the Baptist. So that's essentially what gets him here in the first place. Verse 2, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, Evidently, the people who were following him were just enamored with what they have been hearing about him. And so they're following him. They think of, of Jesus and they hear of him as a miracle worker. And so they take interest in him because of these, uh, these miracles. Uh, the original language um, says that, uh, that they, uh, if you take a look at verse 2, the original language says that they were following him because they were seeing the signs that he was performing. And so it highlights not only the, um, the casual nature that this is the manner in which Jesus conducts his ministry, but also it, it highlights their curiosity. Is this guy exactly who I hear that he is? this point, he was gaining some significant notoriety, and they want to see if the things that they heard about him were in fact true. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. The area that's referred to here has a lot of hills, and so as was Jesus' custom, uh, he was there in the process of traveling with his disciples and uh, instructing them, teaching them as rabbis commonly did at that time, conducting that, uh, that ministry where they walk back and forth from various locations. Uh, but here he stops at this hilly region. It's from this vantage point that verse 5, he looks up, he lifts up, lifts up his eyes, and he saw that this large crowd was coming towards him, most likely uh, because they're trying to glean from his teaching at some level that he was giving to the disciples. Uh, But I want you to look at verse 4. Verse 4 gives us a crucial detail for our grasp of the setting of this sign. It says this very brief statement. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And I think that that orients the setting here. That orients the entire setting here. This is a detail that is not found in the other Gospels, and it's vital to understanding this event from the Gospel of John. The Passover in Israel was among the three uh, most important feast days that signaled God's faithfulness to his people, and it signaled their own nationalistic pride uh, of them even being the people of God in the first place. Uh, The Passover was, to them, 
sort of like what the 4th of July is for us nowadays, only the Passover for them was far more important for two basic reasons. Number one, because it was given directly by God through divine revelation. And number two, because it points in no uncertain terms to the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to him in no uncertain terms. The first Passover anticipated Israel's exodus from Egypt. They're leaving uh, from Egypt. And so there's a note of liberation here. In other words, it points us to the fact that you're free in Christ. See Galatians 5 for more info. It points us to the fact that we are free in Christ. On Passover, a lamb was slaughtered, and the lamb's blood was put on the uh, doorposts of the houses of the people of God. And those who had the, uh, the, the blood on the doorposts and the, what's called the lintel, the top of the, uh, the door, were kept safe from the wrath of God. Uh, so this Passover then was about to take place sometime in the near future. And this is what would have been on everybody's minds uh, at this time as this crowd was drawing near. Perhaps the crowd who was drawing near, who was already thinking about the details of the feast while they were following Jesus. John certainly was. Uh, from the time that he wrote this uh, book to the time that he actually experienced these events, you know, perhaps there was, I don't know, about 50, 60 years of time that lapsed uh, between those two points, and it enamored him so much that he had to at least give it a little bit of mention, that he remembers this miracle because it was near the Passover. That's a noteworthy feature of this passage. He remembered it for many years before writing it down. So we've got the setting. The disciples are present. The crowd is approaching. The Passover was at hand. Uh, Moving on to our second point, the performing of the sign. We look at verse 5 and we come to the words of Jesus who says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Rabbis would often test their students as to their knowledge of various matters and as to uh, their ability to synthesize information and to come up with a solution. And very often the students would get it wrong, and uh, it's for the purpose that Not only the disciple could know something, but also that everybody else could learn something. And of course, this has direct consequences for us nowadays, doesn't it? Uh, The master still teaches us, right? The master still tests his uh, disciples. The master still does this. The the, the master rabbi, the Lord Jesus, still does this uh, with with us nowadays, right? Uh, Can I at least get some head nods that the Lord Jesus still tests us nowadays Uh, And and no matter how much uh, that we either succeed or fail, he has the right to test us and to show not only us, but the people around us a thing or two about how much we depend upon him. Uh, This is a direct relevance in terms of our life nowadays, how much we need Jesus. And we still even have to learn now what the disciples learned way back then, something about the provision of God in Christ for us, even nowadays, even nowadays. The master still is in the the, the mode of teaching his disciples, that is, yourself and myself, even nowadays, so that we would know something of our own deficiencies, and so everybody else around us would know of their own deficiencies and how much we lean upon the provision of God in Christ. And so, so Philip uh, answers it really in a way that's according to the sentiments of how we would answer uh, being tested ourselves, right? Philip answers in a similar sentiment, 
As anyone, any one of us would who was tested by the Lord Jesus purely on a natural level, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A denarius, that's the singular, denarii is the plural, a denarius is a day's wage. So they're figuring that about eight months' wages wouldn't be enough for them to get even a little bit of food, just a tiny morsel of food. It tells us of the size of the crowd, and by the way, yes, only the men are counted. It's very clear in the original language, only the men are counted, just as in uh, the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. Very clear about that, not the women and children, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, But think about it. This response is in line with almost every single time the Lord Jesus tests his people. I mean, how often are we tested to trust in the provision of God and Christ? And our response is very similar to to this. Our our, our response is to find whatever is the most natural uh, way out of the the, the exam. Whatever is the most natural, uh, whatever is the most sensible way of responding to this test. Maybe we come up even with ways to get out of what the Lord is teaching us instead of just simply leaning upon him. right? Instead of just leaning into Jesus And trusting in his sanctifying work, the master knows what he's doing. So this uh, this phrase that uh, Philip uh, gives is not out of sync with how we commonly express ourselves when we are tested by the Lord Jesus. We find what is most natural and what is most sensible. This is parallel to what is happening here, where it's obvious that even the disciples couldn't deliver on this very question. So the performing of the sign has in view the backdrop of the deficiency of the disciples. They lack, in other words, what only Jesus can provide. And really, this is the, um, this is the result of that test, isn't it? They lack what only Jesus can provide. They were tested to this and shown to come up short. So on, on to verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves, and two fish, but what, what are they for so many? And this question really prompts the activity of Jesus in the performing of the sign, because if we take a look at it again, in a way, it's, it's an admission of defeat. It's an admission of defeat and an admission of dependence, an admission of inadequacy on the, on the, the, the part of the disciples, And keep in mind, these men were with Jesus uh, physically for a number of years. And even they don't get the the, the cue uh, well enough that, hey, y'all are still deficient. How much does that land upon us? We still need to, well, be in the mode of failing that exam so many times of our deficiency and of our inadequacies. The master is still teaching us to this very day these uh, these things. Uh, But looking at the size of the crowd... And looking at the, the, the little that's, uh, that's there, which is really only a snack for a grown man, uh, one can only conclude that there's no way for all these people to have the food in the way that Jesus uh, was telling them that they should have food. Uh, take a look at verse 10. Uh, but uh, Verse 10, he has the people sit down. Uh, verse 11, he gives thanks, and he distributes the loaves and the fish to them. And I can only imagine the, 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 the look on the disciples' faces as the food was being distributed, you know, you take uh, ten, uh, five barley loaves and two fish. I was saying to the uh, high school class, this is essentially a, not exactly a pancake, 
uh, and probably something that resembled sardines. Uh, sorry to break your um, image of, uh, of, of this, what's in your, your head. Uh, actually, I'm not sorry. Um, but uh, this is hardly that much food, right? And I can only imagine the look on the disciples' faces when he distributes it to one, and then he distributes it to the next, and 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 it came, it kept coming, it doesn't stop, it doesn't show any signs that the supply chain is kind of backed up a little bit, maybe, or that it's slowing down at all. I can only imagine the disciples' faces being absolutely blown away that at the end, every single person, group by group, as we know in the other Gospels, he had them sit down in groups of 50 and 100, Group by group, person by person, everybody has not just as much as they needed, but verse 11, verse 12, as much as they wanted. And then verse 12 says that they had eaten their fill and there were 12 baskets filled with leftovers. Now, one thing should strike us as to how this is uh, presented to us. This miracle is presented to us rather passively, and by that I mean that there's no actual explicit description of this picture of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish, right, um, in this, uh, this, this passage or the parallel uh, accounts. There's no real explanation of the event itself. It's more focused on, uh, upon the food being distributed to the crowd instead, and why is that? Why is that? Well, I think it's because, as we've seen before, signs like this one uh, are meant to be uh, used as, uh, as, as, as exactly what they are, signs. They're meant to, to point to something beyond themselves. We're supposed to think about them, but we're not supposed to be fixated upon them. We're supposed to, uh, they're supposed to be gestures of a greater reality. Uh, they're supposed to be activities that speak of something beyond themselves that is greater than they themselves. This sign, this is a sign of something greater and larger than just what happens here. The crowd understood this. The crowd understood the meaning of this sign that it does point to something greater beyond themselves, which is why verse 14, when they tried to force him to become king... When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take him, to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus do this after the performing of the sign? Why avoid the crowd like this? Well, I suppose one reason is that they wanted a political king who could destroy the Romans and fight for Jewish national dominance, and so he leaves because he doesn't want his kingship to be mistaken. Another reason is because the crowd is so fickle. Uh, Those of you who know the passage know that the very next day, uh, they'll deny him, and many will never follow him ever again. They're so fickle. Uh, Thirdly, his kingdom isn't one that's established upon the hands of men and the whims of men. His kingdom is not one that is established by the whims and will of men. It's a kingdom that conquers not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God, John chapter 1. His kingdom is one where he gives gifts to men. 
He gives gifts to us in our deficiency, not the other way around. I mean, you'd think that they would realize this after what just, uh, just happened. Uh, they didn't provide the food, but they were served the food. And that's what his kingdom is like. That is exactly what his kingdom is, is like. So he evades these crowds because really, it can, we can say this, they really don't want him to be king at all when it all comes down. They really don't want a king in this vein, in this capacity, who serves rather than a, a king who is to be served. So the performing of the sign caused the reaction of the crowd this way, which made Jesus withdraw to a mountain alone. Uh, we've seen the setting of the sign. We've seen the performing of the sign. Lastly, moving on to the meaning of the sign. And for this last point, I'd like to uh, say there's three uh, takeaways that I want to highlight about the meaning of the sign of multiplying the loaves and the fish in the Gospel of John. So what's the sign all about? Jesus multiplies uh, loaves and fish, not only to his disciples, but also to 5,000 men. Estimates, uh, I've read the commentators uh, vacillate between 10 and 12,000 people. Um, That's certainly possible. What is the meaning of this sign? Well, certainly it's voluminous in terms of the amount of meanings that one can draw from this. I'll only let us go with three. Firstly, it means that a new Passover was being inaugurated for a new Israel. A new Passover was being inaugurated for a new Israel. If these signs are meant to correspond to the Exodus event, this is a very clear relationship that's here. We'll look at the manna that comes from heaven in a later sermon when Jesus makes that explicit later on. But this is the reason why verse 4 is there. This is the reason why verse 4 calls attention to the Passover so that it can signal to the reader to think about the significance of that meal, namely that it commemorates deliverance from the bonds of Egypt. A new Passover is being inaugurated to a new Israel. There was a longer feast uh, that was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread that happened directly after the Passover. And these two feasts, the Passover and Unleavened Bread, uh, were often listed together. Uh, Very often, one was just a moniker for the both of them, so that when you refer to the Passover, you mean Passover and unleavened bread, or the other way around. Uh, These two are inextricably uh, linked. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would eat bread for seven days, and here you have Jesus providing the bread for the people of God within that very time period in which that feast was to take place. So there's a clear relationship between the two. Also, one of the commands of the Passover is found in Deuteronomy chapter 16, is that the people of Israel were not to come to the Passover empty-handed. That is a very, very explicit thing. It's found also in the book of Exodus. Very clear, uh, for whatever reason, it's a, it's, it's a highlighting of, uh, of, of that command. You shall not come to the Passover empty-handed, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. Well, in kind of a reverse way, this is exactly what the crowd did. Right? This is basically what the crowd did. They came empty handed. And you know what? You know what happened? Uh, they didn't leave empty handed. Uh, not, uh, not in the slightest. Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God, our Passover, who was about to be sacrificed, sent them away full. 
sent them away satisfied with tons of leftovers, to be sure, with 12 baskets fulls of leftovers representing them, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the new people of God in Christ, the new Israel of God in Christ. They might have come in empty-handed. That's definitely not how they left. And by the way, that's your story as well. That is your story as well, isn't it? Coming with nothing, empty-handed, entirely empty-handed, and now that you are in Christ, you inherit everything that Christ has won for you. You come into the kingdom of God totally empty-handed, and you conduct yourself as being an inheritor of the kingdom of God itself. Read the Westminster Confession of Faith on adoption, if you don't believe me. So in the like way, you have this sign, the people coming back full and satisfied. There's also far more to spare, which leads to the next meaning of the multiplying of the loaves and fish. Secondly, it means that in the ministry of Jesus, all the people of God have everything that they would ever need and more. In the ministry of Jesus, all the people of God have all that they would ever need and more. It means that Jesus is sufficient. It means that Jesus is sufficient for you. It speaks of the sufficiency of Christ, the overabundant sufficiency of Christ for you, that just when you think that, and there's no possible way I've sinned in this particular capacity, all of God's mercies are totally dried up for me. Now, just when you think of all of God's blessings and his provision for you is totally dried up, there's far more in the storehouses, far more than any of us or all of us could possibly take in. And brothers and sisters, There is even an eternity of sharing in the blessedness of Jesus Christ and everything that he has worked for and and won for you to look forward to. It speaks to his sufficiency now and his sufficiency in eternity. This sign is the reverse of the eighth and ninth plagues that are put upon Egypt. The hail and the locusts that come and, 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 and swarm over all the land to destroy their food. There's very clear parallels between there, specifically with how they react politically with the Pharaoh and with, uh, with Jesus here. But in Christ now, we, we, we have a show of abundance, we have a, a blessing and a never-ending provision for us. And we don't have it against the backdrop of a pharaoh uh, who can enslave the people of God for a time. We have this against the backdrop of the entire agenda of sin and death and misery. That we have his provision against the entire and total agenda of sin and death. This sign shows for us, by using the medium of hunger, deficiency, lack of food, a glimpse of his provision for us. That all of your greatest enemies that are against you, stand to put you into slavery, and yet Jesus stands to feed you. This sign shows us a glimpse of his entire ministry, even the ministry that he now takes up in interceding for you in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. He's enough. He's enough. He's enough for us. He's sufficient to contextualize everything about you, absolutely everything, your your needs as well as your abundance. He's sufficient for you, whoever, however, and wherever you are. All the people of God have everything that they would ever need in Christ and much more. Thirdly, uh, certainly not lastly, this sign means to show us that the establishment of his kingdom is a result of his ministry. The establishment of his kingdom is a result of his ministry. You don't have to vote Jesus in to become president to establish his kingdom. His kingdom is established by his ministry. 
this being the time prior to Passover, the fervor of Jewish nationalism would be at an all-time high. And one would certainly be thinking about the linkage between the deliverance from Egypt and the deliverance from Rome. These people had a notion about their ideal king. Uh, they thought of their king as a powerful conqueror uh, who would divvy out justice, who would divvy out wrath and retribution against the nation. But is this how he establishes his kingdom? No, this is not how he establishes his kingdom. He comes not as a powerful conqueror, he comes as a healer. Uh, he doesn't come as one who divvies out wrath and destruction, devastation of the nations around them. He comes out divvying loaves and fishes to feed thousands. Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Kings in those days, of course, wouldn't serve the food. But God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, so of course it makes sense that he would avoid the crowd who is compelling him and making, to, to make him king. Because the establishment of his kingdom is not a result of magisterial power. It is a result of his ministry. So we've seen that Jesus, when he multiplies the bread and the fish, he demonstrates the full scope of his earthly and heavenly ministry. And this leads us to some applications for us this morning as we close. Firstly, brothers and sisters, receive from Christ and in Christ your daily bread. Receive your daily bread in Christ. When the people ate and were satisfied, we know from the rest of the story, of course, they have 12 baskets left over, and the next day, they were hungry again. At which point, they needed more food. And we'll get to this, but the sign of the multiplying of the bread was also meant to point to how often they were to be in the mode of continually receiving of the benefits of Christ. Uh, as uh, the book of Deuteronomy says, as uh, Jesus says uh, to the devil himself, man is not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Brothers and sisters, you need your daily bread. You need your daily bread. Uh, you need your daily bread. Come to Jesus and receive of this in the word and in prayer, the means of grace through which the risen Christ still feeds you to this very day. You have such an access to a banquet nowadays in Christ. You have such a beautiful access to a banquet in Christ. Don't spend your time eating the sugary and empty calories of this world. That will atrophy your soul. Receive of Christ who is your blessedness and reward. He is not only the provision, but he is also the provider as well. So far as you commune with him, he promises to fill you and to nourish you. Like the bread that's spoken of here in verse 11 and 12, he will never countenance that any one of you who belong to him will be lost. Uh, the Greek word uh, right there for loss is to be destroyed. Very similar to how the Lord Jesus interacts with us. He will never countenance any one of us to be destroyed. Meet with him daily. Receive your daily bread in Christ. Secondly, live out the kingdom ethics that are assumed by Christ here. Live out the kingdom ethics that are assumed by Christ here. The scenery of this entire event is focused upon the Lord Jesus serving others. It's focused on Jesus' service here. From the other Gospels, you gather that he was tired somewhat discouraged by the death of John the Baptist, and yet the crowd wanted to be with him. 
And so he decides to serve them by performing this sign. Now, he very well could have told them, hey, just go home and eat uh, some, some food, come back. I mean, they weren't starving in, in, in this story or anything like that. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes out of his way, as it were, to have them all seated and then to do all of this. And in this, we have an example of a kingdom attitude of service. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, I implore you to look around you right now. Look around you and think of the people who are even right next to you uh, at this very moment. There is an entire congregation around you presently whom you should serve. So serve each other. It's your job, brothers and sisters, to love each other enough to be in service to one another and even to open yourself up, avail yourself to be served by each other. We have this note of service from the master himself And Jesus says that the student is not above the master, so take joy in serving each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, O 